Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. It could just be my imagination, but I've always felt that my most productive practice years were when I was very young, through about the time I hit age 10 or so. Because in those early years, my practice was spaced across multiple sessions per day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And not because I had so much rep to learn that I had to split everything across multiple sessions, but more so that I could touch everything I was working on more than once per day. I think my mom figured that, you know, we eat three meals a day, so why not practice three times a day too? Whatever the reason, this formula seemed to work pretty well. But as I got older, I started moving away from this practice structure and consolidated all of my work into one single mega practice session. In college, for instance, I'd generally plop down in a practice room after dinner, start out with some etudes and technical exercises, then move sequentially through my repertoire, spending maybe 30 to 45 minutes on each piece before moving on to the next one on my list. Or sometimes I'd devote a whole day of practice to just one piece and put everything else on the back burner like the day before a lesson when it seemed like my best bet was to put all my eggs in that one basket. At the time, I figured practice was practice, and it didn't really matter how or when I did it, but there is accumulating research which suggests that maybe my mom was onto something. How so? In a 2009 study, UCLA researcher Nate Cornell recruited 20 students to participate in a study which compared two different ways of learning vocabulary words with flashcards. Cornell wondered if the way in which the flashcards are organized would have any effect on learning. As in, would learning be maximized if students studied a big stack of flashcards? Or would students learn better if they broke the stack up into smaller stacks to study instead? Well, let's think about this for a second. If you were to study with a large stack of flashcards, say 20, it might take quite a while to get through the stack. So it's very possible that by the time you get back to the first card, you'll already have forgotten the answer to that question. On the other hand, with a small stack, say five, forgetting is less of an issue because it's easier to keep the answers kind of in your short-term memory as you keep cycling through the stack in a pretty short span of time. So which study approach do you think you'd choose? Would you take that single stack of 20 cards or would you split it up into a bunch of smaller stacks and work through the sub-stacks one batch at a time? The students started out by taking an online vocabulary lesson which helped them learn 20 GRE or SAT-type words. One group, the spaced learning group, 
was presented with a large stack of 20 digital flashcards. The program rotated through the cards four times, in the same order, so they had a chance to study and attempt to recall the contents of each flashcard four times. Another group, the Mast Learning Group, was given four smaller stacks of five flashcards each. In this condition, the software rotated through each stack four times before moving on to the next stack, so these students also had an opportunity to study and recall the content of each flashcard four times. There was no limit placed on their study time, and they weren't given any particular instructions on how to study. They were simply told that they would have to take a test about 24 hours following their study session. So was there any difference in learning and recall performance between these two groups? Both groups ended up studying for about the same amount of time, 22 minutes. And approximately 24 hours later, participants were tested on what they had learned the day before. But despite spending the same amount of time studying, one group performed significantly better than the other on the recall test. The spaced group, with the big stack of 20 cards, successfully recalled about 49% of the words, while the students in the massed group, the small stacks, they only recalled about 36% of the words. Why such a difference? There are a few theories about why spacing practice leads to better learning. One is that we tend to pay better attention and are not as prone to falling into mindless zombie mode when we're studying or working on new things, compared to times when we're repeating or restudying the same things over and over in a short span of time. Another is that when we work on one thing and don't come back to it for a while, our brain has to work a lot harder to remember it again, and that effort enhances learning. And in a practical sense, when we introduce spacing into our study or practice, it often means that we're learning and retrieving information in different contexts too, like different practice rooms, different times a day, when our bodies feel more or less fatigued, all of which is way more conducive to flexible and durable learning than if we try to learn everything at the same time in the same setting. There is one more curious but crucial finding. After completing their study session, students were asked to predict how well they would do on the next day's test. Participants in the spaced condition predicted they would remember about 43% of the words, but they actually scored 49%. Meanwhile, students in the masked condition predicted they would remember about 50% of the words, but they could only recall 36%. In other words, the spaced group underestimated how much they had learned from their study session, while the masked group overestimated how much they had gained from their study session. So something about massed practice led to the illusion of effective learning, whereas spaced practice led to more actual learning, even if it didn't feel like it at the time. So what would spaced practice look like if applied to music practice? Well, looking back, I see that my childhood practice, where I practiced every piece I was working on multiple times a day, falls under the category of spaced practice. Conversely, my college practice, where I spent more continuous time working on each piece, but only once per day, was more like massed practice. So perhaps it's not just in my imagination that I learned quicker and better when I was a young child. Of course, we don't usually have the luxury of being able to space practice out throughout the day. So what then? Well, if you were to apply the big stack of flashcards approach to a single practice session, it might look something like take a movement of your concerto, work through it from beginning to end, Focus your attention on tricky passages in intense bursts, moving on after a few minutes so you don't get stuck in any one section. And when you get to the end, go back to the beginning of the concerto and check and work on those tricky passages again. And when you get to the end once more, go back to the beginning again and repeat the process. 
and continue to repeat that process several times perhaps in the same practice session. Compare that to the small stack model where you might take a movement of your concerto, work through it from beginning to end, but work on tricky passages until they sound better and you either run out of time or get to the end of the movement only having worked on each tricky passage one time in that single practice session. The small stack model will probably feel more satisfying and give you a greater sense of accomplishment, but remember that this feeling is deceptive and that you may end up overestimating how productive that practice session was. Whereas the big stack model will likely feel more scattered and less productive in the moment, but lead to more long-term learning when you return to the practice room the next day. You can find links to this week's study and other related practice hacks at bulletproofmusician.com blog. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think would also enjoy experimenting with it during the coming week. And if you'd like to explore this sort of thing in more depth, whether it be to get more out of your daily practice or to get better at managing performance pressure and shrinking that gap between what you can do in the practice room and what comes out on stage, you can learn more about the live and self-paced courses that are available at bulletproofmusician.com courses.